Welcome to the Health Advisor Companion Podcast. My name is Hamza Drabu, partner at DAC Beechcroft. Today's podcast compares the US and UK national approaches to the COVID-19 pandemic, as healthcare systems continue to improvise and adapt to the challenges presented. I'm delighted to have Chase Spurlock with us, CEO and founder of Decode Health and Acuity Labs. I met Chase a few years back in Nashville, the home of healthcare in the US, and we had a great time talking about population health, risk stratification, and the importance of data in developing those solutions. Since then, Chase has been rather busy, most recently developing an AI platform to help identify emerging trends in the COVID-19 outbreak. Chase, it's great to have you here and thanks for joining. I'd love to hear more about what you're currently working on because it sounds fascinating. Yeah, well, Hamza, I really appreciate the opportunity to join you today. And uh, just for your listeners to know, Decode Health, what we do is we try to predict and understand disease outcomes as quickly as possible. And we try to give our customers the ability to find and fix disease risk as fast as possible. And being able to intercept that risk is really important in the context of chronic diseases where we started. And then as the pandemic rolled out, everyone that we were talking to wanted a crystal ball to see where the COVID trends were heading. So we actually shifted our focus slightly and applied our techniques to understanding COVID trends, as you mentioned. And uh, we've done that at a national, state, and community level to be able to understand where the case growth is growing most rapidly, and then also to understand where the outcomes are most likely to be rather poor in terms of increased levels of hospitalizations or deaths as a result of COVID infection. And that's really important because it helps us identify our vulnerable populations and also helps us promote health equity. So being able to understand those drivers that lead to a better or worse outcome, that's kind of been one of our top focus areas over the past year. And as we think about the communities that are at risk for a bad COVID outcome, that also helps us understand where we need to roll out the vaccine efforts or the mitigation efforts or some of these monoclonal antibody treatments sooner rather than later, because they are a hotbed for the worst outcomes. Thanks, Chase. That kind of model where you're obviously doing all of this predictive analytics is hugely reliant on getting data, I assume, getting the right data to put into your solution. And that brings me to a point around the uptake of technology, because I think we've seen a rapid uptick in technology adoption in light of the pandemic. How have you managed to engage? And as you say, you know, you've rolled this out at various levels. How have you managed to engage and who have you been engaging with to get your solution out there? Well, you know, I think as I look back to the March, April timeframe, we had a lot of health departments that were coming together to collect information at a very granular level, a level that they really weren't accustomed to. And so counties started basically feeding real-time information up to the states. And then those state-reported databases were being fed to a national response. And as part of that reporting effort, groups like Johns Hopkins came together and started to actually aggregate some of these data in real time and build out a heads-up display to say, where are we in the country? And so I'm a big fan of Johns Hopkins and what they were able to do very early on in the pandemic to kind of give us a report card of what's taking place. 
And I think that those early efforts really poured the foundation for a data-driven response. And as over time, other non-academic groups like the New York Times or the Atlantic, they were also producing some pretty impressive displays. And then over time, as our federal response became much more robust, teams led by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, as well as members of the U.S. Digital Service, came in to basically try to pull other pieces of the puzzle together to say, all right, here's where we are today. Where are the trend lines pointing to that we need to really have on the priority list? And so it was a season of our lives where we really saw people come together because they had it in their hearts to basically make an impact on this pandemic and uh, to try to get everyone back to a sense of normalcy. And that hasn't been without its flaws and it hasn't been without its issues. The speed at which we were needing to communicate data was real time. And we needed data immediately, but because testing was delayed five to seven days for getting a result in certain cases very early on, and our testing infrastructure was itself put to the test, it basically created a lag in knowledge about where we stood at any given moment. But I think that as the supply chain for testing has allowed more reagents to flow into the system, and then also these testing processes have become much more efficient, I think that's become less of a worry. And we've now built this flywheel where we're actually humming and we are reasonably confident that the information we're receiving on a daily basis is the best snapshot of where we are. And so instead of thinking about the headlines on any given day, let's look at the trend lines. And I think that the trend lines are overwhelmingly positive, especially considering where we were January, February, 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Some huge strides there. I mean, in the UK, that point around collaboration has been really critical. And we've seen that collaboration between the commissioners or payors in US parlance and and the providers of healthcare working together. Obviously, we have a nationalized healthcare service over here, and it's obviously quite different in, in the US. You've talked about some of the different levels, the federal level, the national level, et cetera. How has this worked out with those local healthcare systems on the ground. So just thinking around potential COVID patients that are attending hospital, et cetera, things like discharge back into social care settings and those sorts of issues. Has that collaboration borne out at those levels too? Well, you know, I think that one of the things that we really saw early on is understanding certain demographics, certain risk populations, and then being able to get the education out to say that if you are infected, you need to immediately quarantine. If you're in a multi-generational household, you need to basically safeguard those that you're living with. They themselves need to get testing, especially if they have symptoms. And then if you start feeling as though you're in respiratory distress, you do need to go to the hospital. You don't need to wait until it's too late. And a lot of these secondary complications arising from viral respiratory infection are what ultimately leads to people succumbing to the disease. And so being able to address the side effects early is key. So a lot of this has been an education effort. And very early on, it's education to get tested. It's education to know what the signs and symptoms of disease are. And the signs and symptoms can look like things like flu. But basically trying to raise awareness as to what the cues are in order to lead the testing. And then if you do test positive, the next steps you need to take to protect your loved ones. So... There was an education campaign there, 
There's now an education campaign about vaccines and what vaccines can do for our communities. And then in between, there was a great discussion in the U.S. over which mitigation efforts might be the most effective. Is it mask wearing? Is it physical distancing? Is it sanitation efforts, washing your hands, avoiding touching your face? And the answer is that it's all of the above. They're all designed to work together. It's not just any one thing. And just because you wash your hands or one of my favorites is, well, I tested negative a few days ago. Well, you tested negative a few days ago. That's a snapshot of a few days ago. You could have been infected in the time since. So you need to have your guard up, have the shields up at every step along the way. I think that that's something that I've really tried to preach, whether I'm talking to school groups. So I'm very involved in secondary school education and biostem education here in Tennessee. And so regardless of the audience, it's preaching those basic concepts because we're all in this together and it's all a cycle. Children can infect their grandparents and parents can infect their children. So we have to get the word out. Well, quite. And I think one of those areas to be able to combat the spread is around contact tracing. And we've had our NHS test and trace system that is national and up and running. What have you got going on in a similar vein, if anything, that you have any sort of contact tracing going on in the US? And how has that worked out? I've actually got family members that have been part of the public health response. And in the early days, it was literally legal pads and being able to contact positive individual and then write down the four or five people that they may have come into contact with. And there was a major trust issue there because it was almost like in the early days, I've done something bad. And therefore, you know, I don't want to leave a breadcrumb trail for these people to know that it was me that ultimately and may have infected them. So there was this stigma associated with COVID infection. And that's something, again, we had to use education to basically address to say, well, the goal of contact tracing is to stamp out the fire. So over time, I think we've gone from legal pads to more digital campaign approaches that are less personal, but it allows us to rapidly be able to disseminate that there may have been an exposure. And when we actually disseminate that notification, to have a link to say, here's what this means. And it's, again, an opportunity for education. And some people don't read it, but and some people don't abide by it. But I think if you are at least sending out this knowledge into, into the population, you are capturing a percentage of the population. And quite frankly, I think that percentage is growing over time because everyone wants to get back to some sense of normal. Yeah, I can totally see that. And I think the hope that we're now moving firmly into sort of vaccine rollout phase as well. I think that end of all of this does seem on people's mind, as you'd expect. In terms of the vaccine rollout, we have had quite a rapid approach to rolling that out in the UK. How is vaccine rollout working out in the US? And what are the major challenges that you're seeing? What are the solutions, if there are any? <laughs> well, you know, I think that this is kind of an unprecedented time. And I look to a lot of these areas where testing has been very efficient. They were able to get the system for testing in place, and that's kind of humming along. It's fairly efficient now. Everybody's used to it. And those communities where testing became very commonplace, I think being able to transition to jabs is something that has allowed those communities to approach this with a greater sense of calmness and ease and also to promote better accessibility to the vaccine for their citizens. But 
it's still not without its troubles. And as we all know, these mRNA vaccines, uh, Pfizer and Moderna that came out, they are truly remarkable tools. And the science behind them is decades long, highly effective. But the storage conditions and the shelf expiration is something that has caused some concern. And if you're in rural areas, the Moderna vaccine may be a, a more viable option for you because of the ability to store at a warmer temperature versus the minus 80 degrees centigrade uh, storage for the Pfizer vaccine. So the storage and then the handling has seemed to be the big stumbling blocks in our local communities. Um, some jabs you know, are allowed to uh, expire on the shelf. That's of use to no one. If these things expire, that's a missed opportunity. So there's a lot of media attention to those health departments that are allowing even a few dozen vaccines to go what they are basically essentially labeling as waste. So I think everybody is trying to get the vaccine out as efficiently as possible. We're trying to build bridges into the underserved community to promote trust. For so long, certain members of our community were the target of inappropriate research or research that did not promote equity. You know, they weren't in certain demographics, weren't involved in clinical trials. So we're still in a season where we're trying to repair some of those trust mechanisms. And also, you know, the reality here is that those underserved communities, the minority populations, particularly here, are those that need the vaccine the most. Yeah, quite. We've had very similar issues over here where those populations that need the vaccine most are the ones that are the hardest to get the vaccine to or to take up the vaccine. So probably quite different communities, but similar issues there. How are you trying to address that, at least from your knowledge of your local Nashville community? That's a great question. And it all comes down to being able to close the gaps in care and to address some of the social determinants of health. I'll give you an example very early on. Uh, we noticed that certain regions of our community were predicted to be hotspots. So they were on the way up. And we're like, you know, what, what are the drivers here? And we recognized that it was certain members of the Hispanic community that, you know, were basically seated in those communities. So it told us that we needed to make sure all of our materials were translated into Spanish. But it also told us that we needed to be boots on the ground with education efforts so that they recognized the drivers of COVID spread and the drivers of bad outcomes. And what we found was that people just really hadn't taken it upon themselves to educate. And so there was literally boots on the ground effort, knocking door to door, doing pop-up testing in those zip codes, in those neighborhoods to basically say, here's what we're up against. Here's what you need to be doing. Here's what you need to not be doing. And one of the things that we found was that they were literally gathering 30, 40, 50 people for dinners and lunches and all coming together, all age ranges. And it was perpetuating this smoldering fire. When I was in college, I was actually a member of a fire department. And one of the things we would always do as we were kind of wrapping up a fire call was to look at the hot spots, to take a thermal imaging camera around to see if there was any remnants of the fire left. And otherwise, you know, you could wait a few hours and the house could be on fire again. And a lot of ways, I think that that mentality needs to be played out in our COVID response. So being able to take all the tools at our disposal to be able to stamp out the fire and to be able to address the drivers of that fire, whether it's social determinants, risk factors, or some of these other just basic mitigation efforts that need to be top of people's minds. 
Yeah, absolutely agree. And I think on our side, we're seeing heroic effort in primary care where GPs are effectively personally calling all of those individuals where they haven't taken up the vaccine and they try and understand any of the reasons why not, you know, if you're given a slot. And that sort of approach, that really meticulous approach, I think is really key because I think a lot of it is about education and understanding and developing that trust. And that can only be done, I think, through that communication loop. Okay, one more question, and it's really focused on international collaboration. So international collaboration is clearly a vital part of successfully dealing with a global pandemic. And we as an organization, we've been delighted to support the Trinity Challenge, which is a coalition of a range of multidisciplinary partners from across the world, including academic institutions, big tech, healthcare providers, insurers, and charitable institutions too. And it focuses on improving the use of data and analytics, along with our understanding of human behavior. So very pertinent to the conversations we've just been having in response to health emergencies. How important do you see that international collaboration in the context of dealing with the pandemic? And have you seen any good examples of it or sharing best practice, et cetera, in the work that you've been doing? Well, I think it's absolutely vital. And if we start building barriers to knowledge and data sharing, I think it puts us all at risk. So there needs to be transparency in the time of major outbreaks such as the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm a big fan of transparency, of, of sharing knowledge. And, and I'll tell you, one of the things that I, I've seen since the start of this is the surge in preprint publications. So academic groups, biotech coming together to basically write scientific literature, but recognizing that it's too slow. So they'll actually put it out in uh, preprint form. So these bio archive, med archive solutions have come online as a nice way to basically say, you know, this hasn't been fully reviewed, but it's the latest knowledge. And so it's kind of accelerating that, that sharing of insights, that sharing of clinical data. And in our own response, very early on, to be able to share data, there really wasn't a common backbone. And there really wasn't a common reservoir of information. And the groups that were trying to shepherd this data sharing within the U.S. were literally having to go to the chief information officers at multiple health systems. Those CIOs were then having to execute manual queries and then put it into a common pot. And that's just not sustainable. And that's just a one-time draw. So we need to be thinking about ways to make that consistently refreshed and to make it available in a way that it's secure, it's de-identified, it promotes patient privacy. And there are a number of groups in the U.S. One is DataVant that has really been able to take that area of need and to be able to offer a solution that allows us to de-identify records so that we can generate some of these longitudinal journeys to be able to understand trends. And that's what we do. So we take the fruits of that type of effort and we're able to predict the outcomes and to be able to understand the risk drivers. But it all starts with a data source and the data source has been very clumsy. And so I, th I think we've gotten better at it over the past year. Looking back into 2020 into 2021, I think we're getting better at it. And this Trinity challenge that you shared, I think is an example of how we're going to get better. And to basically have more people coming around the table to say, here are the resources that I bring and how could they complement the resources that you bring? Because if the more we can put into the data bank, the more opportunity we have to identify what's causing the disease 
and how we can address it. Yeah, there's so many different components, aren't there, to this, given the pandemic and human behavior, how we influence and change that. The data from so many different angles and trying to enhance the richness just by having lots of different data points, I think can be really powerful in the future. So here's hoping that there are some excellent ideas that come through that route, putting the brightest minds together from across the world, I think should hopefully lead to a really good solution. It's interesting, you know, a lot of times, 2018, 2019, people would talk to me about claims data, and then they might look at insurance claims to be able to identify patterns. Everybody was kind of looking at insurance claims. Some groups would have EHR information, and you know they would want to mine those data sets for insights. One of the things that we've actually uncovered in the pandemic that's really held a lot of signal for us is just real-time surveying of the population itself. So if there's a population we're serving, being able to ask them a few basic questions has allowed us to actually pinpoint risk at a level of accuracy that doesn't require us to get some complicated data extract. So we're able to take our knowledge of the community and the risk factors within a community and then pair that with the surveys and then actually create a pretty nice picture of where risk is situated. So I think that one of the lessons that I've learned and I think our team has learned is that we can do almost as much with less. <laughs> so we were very prescriptive prior to COVID of saying, you know, here are the data sets we would like to have before we do our work. And now we've realized that we can be very flexible because out of necessity, we were forced to tackle that challenge to be able to map COVID and to map COVID outcomes when we really didn't have much to go on. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? <laughs> Quite right. Quite right. Well, listen, Chase, it's been really fascinating to have you on. So thank you very much for joining us. You can keep in touch with our content at www.dacbeachcroft.com health-advisor for the latest insights, foresights, and thought-provoking articles for health and social care professionals.